series of messages uh, looking at um, the epistle of Second Peter. And it's a, a wonderfully rich book. Um, like all the epistles, um, there's just so much in there. Um, I, I, we're looking at verses 12 to 21 today, and it could have easily been three or four sermons. Um, and uh, I've already received a lot of good uh, feedback from several of those small groups that are going through the, the sermons uh, in their small group time about how much they've gotten out of the study already, and we're just into the third week. So over the last two weeks, we've looked at this book. We've gotten an introduction into kind of the occasion behind the letter, why the letter was written, um, and how important it is uh, for... Peter to emphasize right thoughts about God uh, in contrast to the false teachers who were uh, promulgating wrong thoughts about God. So 13 times in the letter of 2 Peter, we'll come across the phrase, um, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of Jesus is like the key to growth or the not, it's through the knowledge of, of Christ that you can have this divine supernatural power for, for any, everything you need for anything you face. And um, so this idea, the knowledge of God as a, a found, becomes a foundation or an anchor for our, our right thinking about God. And P Peter bookends this entire epistle with the appeal that um, we grow in our knowledge of God. So in verse 2 of chapter 1, he writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. But then he closes the epistle with this appeal. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so last week, we kind of laid out the main theme of this letter. And the main point that he wants to make is that God's power gives us everything we need for anything we face. Or in other ways, God's spirit will empower you to live a godly life here and now. This power comes to us as we know God better and better through Jesus. So verse 3 is really critical to the whole entire epistle where he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness or a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us. So there's that word again. God's power comes to us how? Through what? Through knowledge of him who called us. So there's a logical progression happening here in Peter's thought. We have this salvation in Christ as we've been granted this in him. And we have this divine power in us for godly living, everything we need for anything we face. And this divine power comes to us uh, as we know God more and more through Jesus. So divine power comes through knowledge of him who call us. So what's the next question that Peter would have to answer? How can we grow in the knowledge of Jesus? And that's what our passage will talk about this morning. How can we know God better? How can we know who he is? How can we have this knowledge so that we can have this power, so that we can have grace and peace multiplied in our life? Well, that's what Peter will tackle this morning. And where do we find this knowledge of God? How can we find this right knowledge? 
So let's open up our Bibles to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, as Peter takes us to the next step in his logic. If the divine power comes from knowledge of God, then where do we find this knowledge of God? 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, or, or literally these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off, the putting off of my body will, soon, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's what the word of God is. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come before your word this morning. Peter makes this appeal that we remember these things. And Lord, we, we are forgetful. Lord, so often we are like the Israelites that want to go back to Egypt, where we thought it was safe and, and comfortable. But Lord, you are pushing us. You are leading us to a, a better eternity, a better future, a better home. But Lord, we confess that we are not there yet, that we have this sinful nature, this body of flesh that we live in. And Lord, we are so grateful for your Holy Spirit that comes into our lives and gives us your divine power for anything that we face in this life. And so Lord, we ask that that divine power, your Holy Spirit, might fall upon this place in this time particularly as we hear from you that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear your word this morning. Lord, please do this work in us. We are dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Must be joking. Yeah. 
Memories are powerful. And oh, that it would be that the memory of when we first came to Christ would be ever present in our hearts. Like when, uh, what's his name? Anton Ego ate that ratatouille and was just taken back to those childhood memories where a rush of memories flooded over memories that go beyond simple recollection but memories which are imbued with sights and and sounds, with tastes and smells and sensations and affections and comforts. That's what the gospel is meant to be for us. Not one time, but every single day afresh, every minute afresh. We are to remember these things. Memories are powerful. And this... um, is the point that Peter is trying to make this morning, that we should remember these things. Three times he says, remember these things. This is a picture of my dad. Uh, often my brother and I will talk and we'll remember our father. The, the, <laughs> I've already cried. Um, <laughs> and always one of us will recall and quote a story about him and we're flooded with memories and feelings that touch our very core. When we remember my father together, we're reminded of all the ways that he shaped and formed us and discipled us. And these memories go beyond just facts and recalling information. These are powerful emotions and feelings that are tied to memories of my father. Memories are powerful. And in these verses, Peter writes three times that he always intends to remind them of these things. When he says this, it's not just speaking about facts and information about God, but he's speaking about the whole spectrum of feelings and affections and truths contained in these reminders. The power of remembering our conversion, remembering the whole memory of life before Christ and how he redeemed us out of our sin and what it was like to first taste the grace of God in Jesus Christ and those tears of joy and the warmth of acceptance to realize that a holy God would call us, me, his very own. I mean, that's the mood or the feeling behind the word remember these things. It's similar to how we understand the knowledge of God. It's not knowing facts about God. It's knowing God. Knowing God through Jesus Christ that we can have a personal relationship with him. Just like that, memory is not just facts, but it's recalling the whole spectrum of emotions and affections uh, that our salvation brought into our hearts. So Peter wants to remind us of these things again and again. We don't graduate past the simple message of the cross. The knowledge that a holy God would pardon my sin because his son bore the wrath of God in my place. And that is what we here at ICF want to remind you over and over and over again in our small groups, in our Bible studies, even in our game nights, the message of God's love will be something we want to be continually reminding ourselves about these truths. 
So as we seek to grow in the knowledge of God, we observe here that Peter teaches us to go to two main sources as we continually recall these things as they work salvation out in our lives. And so verses 12 to 15, Peter talks about the power of memory. In verses 16 to 18, the first source that we have is the, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, or really the New Testament. And verses 19 to 21 talks about the prophet's word, um, or the Old Testament. So let's dive into these verses and learn together how we can grow in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, beginning with Peter's appeal to remember these things. He writes in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, literally these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So let's begin with Peter's appeal to memory as his primary aim or goal as their pastor, to remind them of these things. And this is significant, and in no way is it unique to Peter. When Moses was sending the Israelites into the promised land, he said, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Remind them of all that I have done, right? David ministered to his own soul through remembering God's kindness in the Psalms. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done and I ponder the work of your hands. Jesus, of course, instituted a regular practice of remembering that we're going to practice today. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul wrote to the Philippians, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. In many ways, the Christian life is more about remembering than it is about innovation, We've already seen the power of memory in our opening illustration. But here in our passage, Peter gives us some powerful teaching about what memory does in the Christian life. And he writes in verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities or these things. And in the ESV here, uh, they made an interpretive decision with the phrase these things, rather than keeping it vague, the ESV refers to the list of virtues in verse 5 is these things. But other scholars, and I I tend to agree, think that these things just refers to everything that he just recounted in verses 3 to 11, about God's divine power giving us everything we need to live a godly life, so that we strive to live godly lives, adding to our faith these virtues, so that we will be welcomed into eternal home with a rich welcome and not uh, uh, sent away. These are the things that we need to remind ourselves. This is the gospel. And the reason I think Peter's referring to the whole sweep of our salvation with these things is because he'll often contrast the false teachers as being forgetful. They have forgotten the foundational beliefs of our salvation. So in verse 9, he says, they have forgotten that he was, that the, he was cleansed from his former sins. 
So Peter makes it a point that we not forget the basics of our salvation. To advance in the kingdom is always to be going back to the beginning of our salvation in ever more profound and deeper ways. So Peter makes a point that we not forget the basics. As we grow in our knowledge of God, we will grow in our knowledge of ourselves, and we will see more and more how Christ bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And this will inspire in us affections of deeper and deeper gratitude as we we learn about this holy God more and more, and then we see how fallen we are more and more, and the cross becomes much more precious the more we know of God and the more we know of ourselves. And that is the process of sanctification. And in chapter 3, Peter does this again. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So we have the first one. This is the second one. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They didn't have it yet. They had the Old Testament, but the New Testament was in process, right? So memory is powerful. Remembering the gospel. And, And not just the nuts and bolts of the facts of the gospel, but go back to that place of humility when you first saw the light in your heart when your heart was strangely warmed and the light of Christ shone brightly in your heart. Recall also your heart's affections and the gratitude of the good news that Jesus brought into your life. Let the memory of your salvation stir up within you profound affections of thankfulness and worship. And Peter will point out three things in these verses, three things that will happen in us as we remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel. As we remind ourselves of God's word to us, three things will happen. The first you see in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I will remind you of these things even though you already know them and you are established in the truth. Recalling these things, recalling God's word, recalling the gospel will establish you in the truth. So what does that mean? Well, to be established in the faith or in the truth means that we build our faith on solid ground, um, on the truth of God's word. Jesus used this analogy of the man who builds his house on a sandy foundation rather than on solid ground. And he ends the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous teaching, with this illustration. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. If we build our lives on the word of God, we will be firmly established. We will have solid foundations. Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There we have them again together. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone to whom they're both pointing towards, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, and we are that temple. Established means to be on solid ground of God's word. 
Paul will also say uh, similar in uh, Colossians. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And again, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so that then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. So all of these refer to building our life and our faith on God's word to us in the gospel As you receive Jesus, so walk in him. We never get past these basics of the gospel. And that's the truth which will establish us in faith, that our faith is built on solid ground. And you have to think of your faith as as like a building project that grows with time. And God's word is the foundation which sets the parameters of our life and our faith. Everything is checked according to the foundation and the cornerstone. So remember, these basic truths of the gospel will establish us in a firm foundation. Uh, If I can add a, a pastoral word here, some of us, some of you, need to come back to these basic truths. I often speak with people in crisis, and it's clear that we often have the tendency to be so practically minded or or functional, what's the solution to this problem, Uh, rather than going back to God's word and seeing that maybe this problem is here to sanctify you. (laughs) Maybe this problem is here to help you grow in the faith. And, And maybe not escaping this problem or somehow fixing this problem, but rather learning how to endure this problem faithfully is what the Lord wants from you. And we move too quickly to to a functional type of Christianity, of of adding Christianity as a sort of self-help to your life or a self-improvement. But to ground yourself in God's work of salvation in your heart and to let his power in you be the foundation on which you build and add your faith. Remember, we build on what he has already accomplished in our hearts. His finished work is the basis of what we work And often I see many of you trying to make Christianity fit in your life uh, as your life already is instead of letting Christ tear down your life and build it for his glory. And so go back to the basics of God's divine power at work in your life, in your heart. And his power will give you everything you need for anything you face. Remember these things and your faith will be established on solid ground. So that's the first thing memory does. Reminding ourselves of God's word establishes our faith on solid ground. The next thing that memory does and has an effect on our walk is in verses 13 to 15. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, he's, he's gonna die. But he knows that as long as he's in this body, he wants to remind them of these things so that he stirs them up. So stir up. The word is actually a very violent word. It should be to arouse or to abundantly fill up until it overflows. It's it's, um, the same word Mark uses when The violent storm broke out on the Sea of Galilee as the disciples were traveling across and Jesus was asleep at the helm. 
And so it's a very strong word, uh, a very arousing emotions, as Peter says in verse 13, through his reminder. And that's this affectional component of memory, that our hearts are stirred up into action, and there grows in us an ever-deepening gratitude and devotion to Christ as we remember these things. And this is the emotional feeling of salvation. Often you'll see people up here and start to cry when they talk about the cross. And it's not dramatic display. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working in their lives, just reminding them of how precious our salvation is. Amen. When they describe what Christ has done in their life, and they'll often be flooded with the memory at that moment of Christ's saving love for them. We do not only have a faith of cold, hard facts, but also of heartwarming affections towards Jesus. He, uh, we read what, that he will make our hearts of stone a heart of flesh, and we will beat for him. So a saving faith will, will also have a very profound, deeply stirring emotional aspect to it. Our affections are awakened. And we're not robotically speaking facts and reciting memory verses, but rather our love for God grows as we bring to mind his saving acts. And the Spirit is at work in this process, impressing upon our hearts the beauty of Christ as we remind ourselves of our salvation. And so as we take communion today, this is a great opportunity for you to remind yourself of those times when you were saved, that beginning first fire of the Lord, to allow God to stir up in your hearts as well as in your minds. So remembering the gospel stirs up within us deep feelings of love and gratitude, worship and devotion. So, so do that today as we remember Christ. Finally, in verse 15, the third thing that memory does that Peter teaches us is well, what we typically think of remember, to recall, right? Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may uh, be able at any time to recall these things. Now that's the most basic definition we think of when we hear the word to remember. But it's an important one (laughs) because we are forgetful. And this is one that we usually associate with the word and of just recalling information. As we remember, we recall what Jesus taught what the Lord wants from us, who, who God really is. We often go through hard times and just forget that God loves us and he's not against us. And one of the, the, the most fundamental things of pastoral care in a crisis is to remind people that God loves you and that God hasn't forgotten you, that, that God is good. And so this is when we need to recall these basic facts and truths about God. Verses like Romans 8, um, 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We need to recall these things when we forget them. We need to remember that God is for us and not against us, even when we have to walk through trials and suffering and hard times. And especially then, we need to remind ourselves that God is good. When Satan tempted Eve in the garden, what did he attack? He tested her memory. Did God really say? Um, Yes, he did. 
So this is the most basic and fundamental consequence of remembering, to recall God's word, which gives us right thoughts about God, about us, and about the world that we live in. So we see in verses 12 to 15, three effects, three powerful things that memory does. And this is what Peter teaches us, that memory establishes us in the truth. Remembering the gospel, remembering God's word will stir us up and it evokes strong emotions. In verse 15, uh, reminding ourselves of these things recalls or brings to mind what we so often forget. Now we'll come back to these at the end because this is just a natural application of our passage, uh, especially as we come to communion to, to practice these things. But Peter makes an interesting point here at the end of verse 15. While he's alive, he writes that he's going to do everything he can to remind them of these things so they can always recall them at any time. So I think as Peter's writing this, he's also writing the gospel of Mark with John Mark. The early church had this unique blessing of having the apostles in their midst and asking them, you know, did Jesus really have long hair and a goatee or how, what, or beard or whatever? How, how did he look? What did he do? They could ask him anything, but we don't have that luxury. So that's why Peter goes on and speaks of the two sources of our knowledge of God and where we can go to be reminded of God's word to us. At this point in the history of Christianity, the apostles began to be martyred. They began to die. And James had already died in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul would die in these persecutions within just a few years. Um, And it was at this point that the church began to write the Gospels. It was at this time that Peter called John Mark to record his eyewitness accounts of Jesus' ministry. And we have Peter's recollections recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And part of Peter's efforts to ensure the apostles' teaching goes on after their deaths was to be sure to write them down so that you could recall them at any time. And so it was when the apostles began to die that Matthew and Luke and John began to write their gospels. And already at this point in time, we see Peter referring to Paul's writing as scripture. Remember, uh, Paul was 30 years uh, in ministry at this point. So Peter's writing about 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus' death. And so already by this point, Paul's letters were considered scripture by the early church. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, fair, fair enough, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So already at this point, Paul's letters were considered scripture. And so we see, as we now come back to chapter one, Peter has already began to set the limits on what has spiritual authority over our lives, what it is we are supposed to recall and remember. Uh, And in verses 16 to 21, Peter describes two places that we are to go to grow in our knowledge of God, which is so essential in this letter. The eyewitness accounts of the apostles' teaching and the Old Testament, particularly the prophets that point us towards Jesus. So let's begin with, um, you know, basically it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's begin with uh, what he writes about the New Testament in verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain. So Peter refers here to we. It was Peter, James, and John as Jesus took them up, uh, probably Mount Sinai, as in those uh, they witnessed uh, the transfiguration, right? And here, Peter is already combating the false teachers. Peter appeals to the eyewitness accounts. And here, he's particularly referring to the transfiguration that you can read about in Matthew 17. But here, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to Mount Sinai, and they saw Jesus transformed, and they saw him as he truly is. They saw his glory. Do you remember when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back in his glory. And so the false teachers, they were teaching, well, Jesus isn't coming back. There's not going to be a judgment of the dead. And Peter was like, oh, yes, there is. (laughs) I saw him in his glory. And he is coming back. And the false teachers were following apparently cleverly devised myths and fables which denied the second coming of Jesus. But Peter writes, I was there and I saw his glory. I saw Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And here we have the word of God, right? Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus the the New Testament, right? Uh, And it's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. And so as we know his word better, we're going to know Jesus better. Do you see that connection? It's so important. And so Peter appeals to the early church to follow the eyewitness accounts. And the apostles' teaching as they're faithfully passed on. Um, yeah, and that's, that's why the requirement for every New Testament book is that it had an apostle standing behind its writing. That somehow every book of the New Testament was written under the authority of one of the apostles and connected to one of the apostles. So the first place Peter says we can go to remind it of these things is the New Testament, which is the apostle bearing witness back to everything that they've seen and heard in Jesus. So if you want to grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus, go to the New Testament. The second place Peter refers to is the prophets. Look at verse 19 to 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here Peter refers to the prophets uh, as another place for authority. But we don't just have to limit ourselves to the prophets since we know Jesus himself referred to the entire Old Testament as the scriptures. Um, So when Peter is writing this, the Old Testament was fixed But obviously the New Testament was still in process. But Peter says, not only do these Christians have the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, but they also have the Old Testament um, prophets who predicted Jesus, who spoke about the coming day of the Lord, right? Remember the false teaching was about this day of judgment and day second coming of Jesus. The prophets are the ones that introduce us to this idea of the day of the Lord. 
and who foretold all that would happen. And it's remarkable how Jesus confirmed everything said about him hundreds of years after it was predicted. If you have a moment later today, go read Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 and just marvel at the precise way in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So Peter's simple point is that we have eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. We have divinely orchestrated fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament. And these are the solid ground on which we need to base our faith and our belief and our practice and our teaching. This is what we need to remind ourselves of. The simple point of these verses is that we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and this is where we need to go to grow in our knowledge of God. As we know his word, we will know him more and more because Jesus is the word become flesh. And so when we study the Bible, we meet Jesus there and that's how we can know him more and more as we commune with him in his word. So we see now in verses 20 to 21, one other thing that's important. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. (coughs) So as Christians, we believe the Old Testament and the New Testament was written through what we say inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it was breathed out by God. And we read here a nice different way to talk about it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible comes from God. But it's written through men with unique personalities, unique education backgrounds, unique experiences, unique backgrounds. Christian inspiration of scripture is a balance of God working through men. So inspiration of scripture isn't some kind of mechanical dictation from God as if the minds and personalities of the biblical authors were somehow hijacked by God. Rather, the unique personalities and writing styles of the biblical authors come out in Scripture. Um, You can see, you can tell Peter's presence in the Gospel of Mark. It's a very punchy book. You can see that Luke was a very detailed man. You know that Luke and Acts, written by Luke, are are composed most of the New Testament. Did you know that? (laughs) Um, So inspiration of Scripture isn't something that is void of of human agency. And that's unique in the Christian faith. The unique personalities, the unique writing styles of the big biblical authors come through. But at the same time, the concept of the inspiration of scripture does not mean that God gave the biblical authors some vague impression or some vague concepts and said, go ahead and, and have fun with that. But the picture Peter describes here is that authors were were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's literally referred to as a boat is carried along by the wind. Uh, So through God's sovereignty and human agency working together, God sovereignly ensured that everything that was written was indeed accurate and a reflection of his word to us. And so this is very different than Islam or, or the Mormons who believe God dictated the Quran or the Book of Mormon directly through an angel as the writer was in some kind of trance-like state. Now, the Christian idea of inspiration is much more nuanced and, and realistic in how the Bible came to be written. So 
In summary and to conclude, Peter makes an appeal and an exhortation that we continually remind ourselves of these things. And he goes on to give two sources, two places that we can go to meet God, to grow in our knowledge of God, and it's in the Word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Peter teaches us that as we do these things, as we remind ourselves of God's Word and come back to God's Word, that the truths of Scripture will establish us in the truth, will stir us up, and will recall and bring to mind Right? That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come and remind you of everything that I taught you, Jesus told the apostles. So the application this morning, particularly as we turn now to take communion, this special memorial meal where we take time to remind ourselves of these things, memories are powerful. And Peter is speaking much more about recalling information. But allow the Holy Spirit this morning to sweep over you flooding you with the whole array of sights and sounds and feelings of salvation. So we take communion, or later in this week as you dive into God's word, let us be intentional about opening our minds and hearts to be reminded of what Christ's work on the cross has done for us. Let it establish you in what is true. As we take the bread and drink the cup, remind yourselves of the cost of your salvation. And allow that to stir up within you and arouse feelings of gratitude and awe at the graciousness of God. As we recall these things, let it correct our false thoughts about God as we're reminded of what is true. And maybe you're here today and you have only understood what God has done for you on a cognitive level, but your heart has not yet been changed. I'd encourage you this morning to ask the Lord to open up your heart, to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you might feel deep joy and relief that your sins are forgiven, that they've been atoned for, that they've been paid and forgiven, and you can have a new life this very morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come before you, your presence this morning, and we take this time now to prepare our hearts as we will prepare our hearts in song, we take this time to examine ourselves. I pray to you, Lord, that your spirit would yeah, awaken in us affections, things that perhaps have been long dormant, that we've forgotten, that we've forgotten the joy of our salvation, that we, we've lost that first fire, Lord, or that first love. Lord, communion is meant to bring us back to that place. So as we take the bread, and we take the cup this morning, we ask for your spirit to do a supernatural work, this, this divine power to be at work in our hearts, to, to recall and, and, and bring to mind and stir up and establish and, and help us to remember truths that are long forgotten. Lord, do that work in us, we pray. Not just here, but as we go home and have the privilege to open up your word and commune with you there. We ask that you would do that same work at home or in our workplaces, in a park bench or, or wherever we find ourselves in your presence this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.